0: Sustainability. It's an easy concept to get behind. Who doesn't want a greener planet? The problem, living sustainably can be inconvenient. Welcome to the Baylands Podcast, a conversation about the global and local strategies that make zero carbon living achievable. We'll explore how sustainable living in the form of intentionally designed communities can actually enhance lifestyle, making life easier and more meaningful while at the same time reducing our carbon footprint.
1: We should all be thinking about this planet in that way, that it is not just about our responsibility to it now, it's about responsibility to it in the future and to future generations and making sure that it's a place in which future generations can live. So I think we've all got a responsibility towards stewardship.
0: Hi, I'm Linda Grasso. In this episode, we talk with William Murray, co-founder of Murray Tuig, A London-based firm that crafts development strategies for developers, investors, and cities, helping them to drive long-term value and create successful, thriving places. William has worked on some of the world's most prestigious buildings and developments, including Battersea Power Station in London and One World Trade Center and Hudson Yards in New York. William, first, let's get a clear understanding of exactly what it is you do professionally. I'm interested specifically in your area of expertise.
1: Okay. Well, well, I try to help um, developers and development teams working on projects to make nicer places, to make better places. Um, We take teams through a process that helps them understand what they're trying to achieve, why they're trying to achieve it, because that helps them understand what their kind of important goals are and then shows them how they do it. And this is all around the kind of the area of of what we call placemaking, um, which is a very broad term used in lots of different areas to describe the creation of, a, of nice places. But we talk about it in a very specific way, which is about creating valuable places, places that are more valuable. Um, and that means not only value for an owner, but it means value for the area around it, value for a place, which means value for a user. So trying to help teams understand how they might inhabit a master plan, how they might inhabit a place in the future. What is this place going to be? Who's going to come here? Why are they going to come here? What will they do when they're here? Um, and we do that through a process of kind of collaborative facilitation uh, rather than going to going to a project and saying, this is what you should do.
0: Great. So you mentioned your projects are about creating nicer, better places to live. How often do those projects also... Uh, have elements of sustainability
1: to be honest with you, I think that the, I don't think I've worked on a project in the last twenty five years where, where that wasn't talked about, where that wasn't a component. Most projects that I talk about that I work on talk about sustainability in some way, shape, or form. I think what's changed over the last few years is an a better understanding of what that means and the fact that as we moved from an understanding that sustainability was a was was economic so, social and environmental, I think 25 years ago, it was just about performance of buildings. So how much carbon does this produce? How much electricity does this use? Um, How inefficient is this building? And now it also talks about sustainability from uh, economic sustainability. How is it benefiting socially? Um, And all of those different other components.
0: When it comes to to sustainability, one hot topic uh, seems to be the 15-minute city. What exactly is that?
1: Okay, so the fifteen minute city is this idea that all of the resources or all of the amenities or all of the facilities that you might need as part of your your daily life are within a fifteen minute journey of your of your house. And it, it, it first kind of was described in Paris. Paris tends to be a, is a city that has a lot of its amenities spread around it. So the idea is that the individual is always 15 minutes away from a doctor, a dentist, a shop, a supermarket, a, a bar, a restaurant, a library, all of those different components. In different places, it means different things. London tends to be a is a is a city of of town centres or village centres, and the idea is that then someone is 15 minutes away from one of those places um, where they can go and get all the things they need. And the idea really is that it means that you can. Rely more on public transport. You don't have to get into your car. You're much more likely to be part of a kind of a of a stronger community. The ideal is that you can walk, but obviously public transport means that that 15 minute radius can be greatly expanded. I think that the 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 really the key is pedestrianisation and walkability, and then public transport.
0: I live in California, and I live in suburbia, and for me, it's sort of a. Fantastical concept, you know. Uh, It just it just sounds so wonderful, and it's something that I've just I only experience when I go on vacation.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Although I think that you know, I think if you look at any of the U.S. cities that were founded and built before the creation of the automobile, they do share a lot of those components. So San Francisco itself, the city of San Francisco, has you know those sorts of places you can walk to that you can you can connect to in those sorts of ways. Boston does as well, and Chicago does to a certain extent, as long as you stay within those confines of the city and where there's public transport. But you're right, there are lots of areas in California where um, the 15-minute city means something very different.
0: Let's also segue over to the environmental benefits, what that means in terms of being better stewards of our planet. There's an interesting,
1: uh, perhaps slightly unlikely correlation to carbon footprint, an individual's carbon footprint, that the most dense cities... Tend to have a lower invi- uh, a carbon footprint for the for the individual. So Hong Kong, for example, ha- surprisingly has a very very low carbon footprint per person because people walk five hundred meters. They use public transport. It's very unlike very rare to to own a car. So I think the main thing is is the fact that you don't use a car and the way that that impacts your um, your carbon footprint. I think, however, as we know, the 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 real estate industry, the construction industry, is one of the biggest contributors to climate change and to carbon footprint. So um, densifying places and making the buildings themselves very efficient, as well as making it easy for people within those places to live efficiently. That's the great opportunity.
0: I know that you've been involved in creating the initial vision for the Baylands, uh, approximately 700 acre, zero carbon community in Southern San Francisco. Um, look, you have your choice of of what projects you take on. What was it about the Baylands that attracted you that made you want to get involved?
1: You want to deliver a new way of living, but what does that mean? Right? Actually, it's very easy to say, it's very hard to do, it's very too, uh, hard to understand what that means. So, articulating that, defining it, and then what does that what do you have to do to make that happen? So, I think the idea of the vision was really compelling. Uh and then the scale of the site means that you can do things on it that you couldn't do in other places. So the ability to provide on-site power generation, the ability to create a large community with a lot of people living in a particular way uh, and therefore collectively being being able to do something uh, pretty extraordinary was very exciting. Um, and so once you combine ambition with the scale to deliver something extraordinary it suddenly became something very powerful something that had a had a really important story behind it and then of course you've got this amazing site which has been abused for a hundred years i mean it is a piece of it's a piece of land that the 20th century has destroyed but the 21st century has an opportunity to revive as a 21st century has an opportunity to repair um and once you combine that with uh a Caltrain station, which again, you know, we talked about transport before, incredibly rare um, in in California, um, you actually have the opportunity to create something that really hasn't been seen before in a place like that, where you have the opportunity for people to, to gain the benefits of living in a community built at scale that has the opportunity to deliver its own power, um, that connects to public transport systems, and that actually can create the sort of environment within it with work and uh, and amenities and community um, that can make a difference. That 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 can change things. I guess the exciting the exciting thing is this idea that the Balens will be something extraordinary that brings together all of these different goals and ambition and aspirations around a really powerful vision. And it's very rare that you come across a team that has such a clear idea about what they want to deliver. And the fact that the balens will be a place in which people can live this. Very responsible life, um, without it having to burden them, is a really extraordinary opportunity.
0: As you mentioned, the Baylands is being built on the site of a trash dump um, that San Francisco has used this dump for, I think, twenty years. Why does that make sense?
1: Well, we realize and we we recognize that the Earth is a very is a finite resource, right? And uh, what we don't want to do. When we need housing, right? We, we, we have a pressing need for housing in most developed countries. Uh, we have an affordability crisis. Um, we want to make sure we are putting people into the most efficient ways of living possible. What we don't want to do, go and do is then take pristine land. We don't want to take um, land that can be left for farming or for nature or, or for open public space. We almost have a responsibility to clean up. What we did in the 20th century that was that was damaging. I mean, it's you know it's all very well we should be recycling plastic, but it would be great if we could take the plastic that we've away and clean it up, or you know reuse it or turn it into something else. And, and we should be doing the same thing for land. What we don't want to do is take that land that has been um, so horribly misused in the 20th century and just leave it and leave it to fester. We've got an opportunity to clean it up and turn it into something better. Um, we've got an opportunity to kind of take that filth. Uh, and turn it into something that is much more positive,
0: you hear the term brown fill a lot when they're talking about reclaiming or regenerating land. What exactly is brown fill
1: a brown field so brown field land as opposed to greenfield land Greenfield is the land on which you can farm brownfield land is is post industrial um you know leftover reused land i e it's it's not land that's being used currently for 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 any purpose, but it has been used, it has been built on in the past.
0: And just so we're crystal clear, what is infill?
1: Infill is uh, as it sounds, uh, you've got a gap between developments and you're filling it in and you are coming in and, and, and filling those gaps in the city. And I think we'd all seen it in any sort of a any sort of a historic town where you go along a street and there's a gap and you have the opportunity to fill in that gap with something better hopefully something better, uh, something that makes a difference. And obviously this site is an infill site at scale. Um, there is opportunities at, at, at either end, there are towns at either end, there are communities at either end. And I think the really exciting thing here, and this is one of the things that we got really involved with, is trying to knit this into existing communities. There are there are exciting, embedded, genuine communities around this site in the Balance. And Balins is not going to be a kind of a dropped-in infill project. It's going to knit into these existing communities. It's going to contribute to them. One of the things I feel really strongly about in the work that we do is that a lot of real estate development is parasitic. A lot of real estate comes to a place that has value and it goes, oh, I'm going to build something and I'll extract some of that value. It's a very easy way to do it. And San Francisco has a lot of inherent value. The land is expensive. People want to be there. Um, you can build a house and pretty much somebody will buy it, right? So it's very easy to be extractive. But if you are too extractive, any host that has too many parasites ultimately gets sick. And so big developments, any developments really have a, a responsibility to be, to be generative, to be additive, so that they are creating value. A project like the Balans recognizes its broader responsibility. It recognizes that there is a responsibility to be additive to this area. And the ultimate goal should be that the people who live there now walk past it and say, you know what, I'm happy they did that. Actually, I think this place is better because of what they did. And it will be better environmentally because it fits into, you know, Brisbane started off as a community of people who left the city to live in countryside. You know, there are people who recognise the the importance of, of, of environmental responsibility, that that uh, a place that, that matches their values, a place that recognises their rights to that place and their ownership of, of that community... And recognizes that if we um, share things, share objectives, achieve objectives together, we'll make much more successful places. This is not a, a red line into which there is Baylands and then there is these other communities. This is a place that stitches in.
0: The Baylands will be a carbon neutral community. It will not emit any carbon into the atmosphere. And I understand that begins in the construction phase. How does that work?
1: I think that... There are lots of ways as we face a climate crisis where we have to reduce the amount of carbon that is going into the atmosphere. Now, some carbon gets created in the building process and gets embedded in building. Concrete is a very carbon intensive building material. But if it's used for 500 years and that carbon is captured, is that, is that kind of a, a poor use of the material? Timber is a great way of building because it's a um, less carbon intensive. It, you know, it's a, it's a carbon capture material. But really, the opportunity for big projects and one of the ways in which we have to be we can be really thoughtful is in carbon use in operation i e the amount of energy that is used in the operation of those buildings, so renewable energy creation um and then making sure that we are not heating our heating and eating with gas, um making sure that the energy the electricity we get are from renewable resources. so I think we what we have to do is work out the ways in which we can improve every part of the building process all the way through to how people will live. Um, so uh, if you look at um, the best performing office buildings from a carbon perspective, it really comes down to the occupier, not to the building itself, it's how people use it. You know, We know this at home, do you switch the lights off, Right? do you um, use air conditioning or not, or do you keep the heating low in winter, that sort of use in operation. So. think one of the great opportunities at Balans is is helping people live the most responsible life that they possibly can by helping them do that. So, you know, if you don't fly, you'll reduce your carbon footprint. Um, If you use public transport, you will reduce your carbon footprint. If you, um, we know from uh, all sorts of studies around the world that the easier you make recycling, the more likely people are to do it. Um, So can you help people to reduce the amount of waste that they use, can you put in systems that reduce people's water use? And different parts of the world are going to have very, very different um, issues to deal with. So in California, um, solar power means that actually the production of clean energy is is quite simple. But grid capacity means that on-site generation is an opportunity and probably a requirement. And then it's also making sure that people's consumption within their houses is is limited. So, I think that there's, it's making sure that there are kind of site specific opportunities to help people be as responsible as they can and contribute to the effort in which, you know, that we all need to take part in.
0: If carbon neutrality is the goal, it seems like you're saying that what we need to do, what developers need to do, is um, to bring in lifestyle choices that help create carbon neutrality. It's all about, a lot of it's about lifestyle, lifestyle choices.
1: I think it's a mixture of things. We need we need regulations. Um, we need more efficient machines. I mean, you know, I, lots of people have electric cars. Um, the bigger the market gets for electric cars, the um, more efficient those cars get. The more likely we are to have them. We know that that's going to have an impact on pollution. Um, so we need industry to to have an impact. We need industry, and, and and real estate is part of that, providing you know buildings that are more efficient, buildings that capture carbon places that are built around public transport. That is a massive opportunity. The 15-minute city, reducing people's need to travel. If you can live and work and shop in the same place, you're much more likely to to, to stay there. Um, and then, yes, absolutely, people's lifestyle. But we know people, it's hard, right? We know people need assistance to do those things. And the easier you make it, the more likely people are to do it.
0: Our minds, when we, when we try to think about uh, a community like the Baylands we have to kind of shift our thinking i mean developers go in they want to do it fast make a profit this is about a long term plan and it takes patience and it takes a different mindset
1: absolutely right i think that there's one of the it's one of the big shifts that's happened over the last 20 years particularly in terms of development at scale and um that idea of patient capital of recognizing that you have to be you have to invest in place um, really successful places do take time um, and that means not only investing in making the first phases effective so that people want to go and live there and people want, want to spend time there but i think also as we enter this really as we enter the 21st century right? we've only been we've been experimenting in the 21st century for the last 22 23 years we're, we're now really working out what the 21st century looks like and, and one of the things that i hope is going to be if feature of the of the next uh, 80 years is this idea that values equal value. That if we are going to address the climate emergency, if we are going to make a difference, we have to recognise that capitalism has the opportunity to shift towards being as beneficial as possible. This idea of um, financial first, impact investing. Where, yeah, we want to make money. That's how the system works. That's how we incentivize people. That's you know the good bits about capitalism. But recognizing that we can do good at the same time, we can bring benefit at the same time, and actually recognize that by doing so, particularly in places, you're more likely to make it successful. That the the current customer, the current opportunity, the what the market wants, what people want, is they want to go to a place that is cognizant of the pressures that are facing us. And I genuinely believe that in the next two, three, five, ten years, people will only want to go and live in places where we are contributing towards the fight against climate change.
0: Do you think that developing these large-scale communities on regenerated land is something that can be replicated in a lot of major metropolitan areas? Are we going to be seeing more of this in the future?
1: Yeah, I think, well, I think that the redevelopment on brownfield land, absolutely, right? And I think post-industrial land, I mean, a lot of the great cities in the world over the last 20 years have had uh, experienced amazing, the the renaissance of their waterfronts, because waterfronts used to be entirely industrial. The reason why cities built around a waterfront was that um, ships came in and they unloaded goods and and that made the city thrive. And whether that was London or San Francisco... um, that the the waterfront was an industrial space. New York, the waterfront was industrial. As those activities have moved out of those cities, we're left with these empty waterfronts that we suddenly realise are great for people to go and spend time in. People want to live on them, and people want to want to go to them. It, it's exactly the same, you know, process. These post-industrial lands uh, are recognised that they're more valuable uh, to live in, to be parts of the city, and and those uses and go somewhere else. And now we have the opportunity to turn these into exciting places. I think being on top of rubbish tips, I think it's really interesting. I, I live in the UK, and uh, in fact, I, I, I live on a street which was in the Doomsday Book, which means that it's a thousand years old. Um, and uh, a lot of excavation in the UK on buildings of that around places of that age, they come across called, what's called midden heaps, which are basically rubbish tips. They're like medieval rubbish tips. So when they do archaeological digs in the city of London, most of what they're finding is stuff that's been thrown away. So we've been living on top of rubbish tips for all of history, that's what people do. You know, if you go to a city that people want to live in, we build on what was thrown away um, in the generation before. So I don't, think that's, I don't think that's abnormal. I think what is, you know, what has shifted is we've thrown away more stuff in the 20th century and we need to change the way in which we function. And again, that's the opportunity at the Bailins, which they live this kind of zero waste life. When you can say, let's stop throwing stuff away. We're going to help you not have to throw stuff away. I'm very lucky. I get to work on exciting projects all over the world where people are trying to push the boundaries, where they're trying to differentiate, where they're trying to do better, where they're trying to stand for something, where they're trying to have some element of purpose. Um, And the first and most important thing about real estate development, it's designed around people. You know, I started by saying we're trying to make better places. Better means more responsible. Absolutely. Better means equitable. Better means sustainable economically and socially, which means people want to keep going there and people want to spend time in there. And it means better res- from a responsibility perspective. I, are we responsible to society? Are we responsible to the environment? Are we making a place that our children, our grandchildren will look back on and go, OK, I'm I'm glad they did that. So I think it's, uh, it's inevitable that we're going to see m- more projects like this.
0: I think you would probably go so far as to say not only would the Baylands be good for people who live in the Bay Area, but the Bay Area actually needs it.
1: If I speak for everybody in the Bay Area, there'll probably be some people who say, no, I don't need it. <laughs> However, what I would say is I think that currently the Bay Area is obviously in, in, in some parts of the Bay Area, it's, it, it's suffering because people have returned home. And they haven't come back to work. They've recognized that maybe there are places that they would rather live. Um, And I think sometimes it's become because the places are so spread out. And because by sitting in our cars, we don't really experience the joy of real communities. I think that creating places that are thoughtful, that are accessible, that are Public that are responsible, that are sustainable, are just nice places. I mean, we can evaluate what makes nice places that people want to live in, and, and we should try and make those. And this is why I think a lot of the time, you know, so many communities are extractive. So many developers have come along and go, "I can, I can just build thousands of houses, and people will buy them because they don't really care because they just need a house, and they, they'll, they don't mind that they'll go in their car for forty five minutes." I, I, I read a really interesting thing the other day about how the commute has changed in our minds post-COVID. So the commute, our commute used to be a cost of living, right? So I work here and I choose to live here, or I can afford to live here, but I have to go to work. And so that commute of 45 minutes in the car, that's a cost of living. Now the commute is a cost of work. Now, when we think about when we're going to go to work, we go, is the work I'm going to do in my workplace worth that 45 minute commute? And we make a decision every day whether we're going to whether we're going to commit to that journey and so travel and how we get between the places that are important to us becomes much more important and i think thinking about how we can make places new places which deliver all of the things that we now know we recognize you know we, we that are, are important in our lives are really important are, are really key and and we forgot a lot in the latter half of the 20th century we, we forgot what makes nice communities we forgot what makes nice cities. We forgot what makes nice places to live. And for the previous 3,000 years of city making, we were really good at it. People really made nice cities. Okay, you know, public health wasn't so great. And, you know, there was inequality. But in terms of actually making cities and streets and places that people like to live in, we were really good at it. And then latter half of the 20th century, we forgot all those things. And we made places that weren't so nice. And we're, we're relearning all of those all of those components of really effective community building and really effective city making that people want to spend time in.
0: You're a well-known expert on creating what is called a place vision. Um, gosh, I've never read about a developer that <laughs> creates a place vision. Uh, what exactly is that?
1: For, for me and my, my business partner, you know, in the work that we do, placemaking is development. So if you are a developer who is not placemaking, you're just making buildings. And then it's important, right? We need to have buildings, I get that. But, but place is what happens within those buildings. It's what happens around those buildings. It's the thing that makes people go there. It's the thing that says, why should I work here? Why should I live here? Why should I support this? Why should I go there? Where should I spend time there? It's about understanding the user experience. It's about understanding why a place is valuable for a user. How do you make my life better? How is this place going to benefit me? How does this benefit my community? It's about understanding how you inhabit a plan. So the place vision is: what do you want to achieve?
0: What is the role of mobility in placemaking? How does that how does that interface with that concept?
1: That's a really that's a really good question. I mean, mobility is. We we did we did a, a project in in Germany with a major European car firm uh, a couple of years ago, and and I I think they struggled with understanding the future of mobility Um, we are going through the greatest revolution in mobility since Ford created the production line and created the Model T um, and we don't really know where it's all going to go and where it's all going to end up and so often we talk about um, you know we talk about autonomous vehicles autonomous vehicles is not going to reduce traffic Uh, we talk about electric vehicles that's not going to reduce traffic um, Micro mobility. Uh, we talk about cycling and the, the, how important and exciting cycling is, um, and yet there are you know issues around road safety. There are issues around, in this country, weather. There are lots of different components. Mobility is the essence of our economy. In fact, I, I did a I did a project in in San Francisco ten years ago, and at the time. Uh, working on the project was a man called Jeff Tumlin who is now the I think still the Transport Commissioner of San Francisco and he said a brilliant thing when he started he said I am a transport engineer but he said but really I'm an economist because without transport there is no economy so I think one we have to recognize that mobility is a fundamental part of creating successful vibrant places you need to get somewhere you need to leave somewhere you need your friends to get there you it needs to be accessible and the easier that is and the more connected those places are the more likely they are to be successful you know we should be building intensely on top of our transport and interchanges because we should be maximizing the 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 usefulness of those places and we should be making a place in which it is enjoyable to be and that means moving around from place to place so it's a place where it's nice to walk and it's not always only nice to walk in a street that doesn't have cars in it. Sometimes cars give a kind of sense of of movement and energy and safety. Sometimes it's wonderful to be in places that are entirely pedestrianised. Sometimes it's quite frightening to be on a street that has scooters and bicycles on it. Although I'm an extremely keen cyclist myself, I recognise that we have to be careful about how we blend those uses. I think what's most important is that we create places that are fundamentally about people and that they recognize that people are the most important bit and that we're not making places that are fundamentally about cars.
0: Another important cornerstone of placemaking is incorporating nature, taking into consideration the topography, adding green space. Share with me about why you that is one of your cornerstones and how you go about doing that and how you're doing it at the Baylands.
1: One the got is in this extraordinary place. It's it's in this amazing location, and one of the it's between the mountains and the sea. You know, there's the San Bruno Mountain behind it. If you look at nature, and then you look at the, the the you know the great body of water in the bay. Um, and even though that's filled with man made activity, there is this still this amazing juxtaposition between between the mountain and and the sea. Um, I think that there is also we we all know that that green space is beneficial to our mental health. And, you know, as I get closer to my house, then I see more green and I see more um, open space. I, I, I can feel that calming influence of it. And I think we also then have to recognize that there's a slight difference between nature and greenery. And when we are in the wild and when we're in the na- purely natural environment, and when we've brought greenery and green space into our built environment and s- trees and streets are really important for understanding how we connect with spaces. Not only do they reduce their urban heat island effects, so they make places cooler, but they make places more pleasant. And making sure that we really embed natural indigenous species, because we also have to recognise that we don't want to be watering stuff excessively, that it is appropriate to the locality. But the more we bring those softer components into into our built environment, the more likely we are to feel comfortable in them. Um, and, And when we do that, we also make places that are biodiverse. And I think that not many people recognise that most city gardens have greater biodiversity than most farmers' fields. Like right? farmers' fields that are intensively farmed aren't actually filled with wildlife; they're filled with crops, and they are those crops are managed, but they're not necessarily filled with wildlife. Whereas people's gardens in the city are filled with wildlife; they're filled with birds and bugs and uh, and all of those little things that that live around us. So the the more we can make those environments, which which bring nature and bring greenery into it the better and i I love this idea that we forget that we're nature right we forget that we are animals we're basically hairless apes Um, and we and we are we are designed to live successfully in those sorts of environments and if you play bird song to people even if you play kind of like piped bird song to people they calm down and they relax because if you hear bird song you're your um, kind of um, prehistoric brain says there's no predator around. So you relax, you instinctively relax.
0: It seems like creating communities like the Baylands is about being basically good stewards of not just land, but of our future. Would you agree? And and why is it necessary for us to do that?
1: Yeah, I think good stewards is a really, um, it's a really nice way of thinking about it. I think that there's a Stewardship is a really important concept. Um, I, I did a, a, a bit of work a few years ago with an organisation called the Crown Estate in the UK. Crown Estate is owned by the Crown. Not owned by the King or the Queen, it, which is a weird distinction, but it's owned by the Crown, by the idea of the Crown, which effectively means it's owned by the, U, the UK state. And so it has existed for 500 years. It will exist for 500 years. And so the way it thinks about land is that it is in continuous care for future generations of the land that it looks after. it is, And it talks about stewardship as being a very, very long-term goal. And really, we should all be thinking about land in that way. We should all be thinking about this planet in that way, that it is not just about our responsibility to it now, it's about responsibility to it in the future and to future generations and making sure that it's a place in which future generations can live. So I think we've all got a responsibility towards stewardship. And taking a piece of land, like the Baylands is doing, um... Taking a piece of landfill, cleaning it, restoring it, renewing it, turning it into a a more efficient use and tying it into public transport, making sure that people can live efficiently on it is an an act of stewardship. And then once you look after that place and critically bring in a community that also cares about those same values so that they look after it and they become involved in that almost social contract, then... um, you're creating a place that is sustainable in the long term, in the broader sense of the, of the term. It will deliver easier ways to get around, it will uh, provide you with easier ways to live lightly, it'll provide you with easier ways to recycle, to do all those things you want to do but find difficult to do.